Welcome to episode 151 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I heard you on NPR recently. I received several emails saying something along those lines. I had been interviewed by Callie Crosley on WGBH's show, Under the Radar. It was their Father's Day episode, and I was invited to share my experience as a work-at-home dad who is balancing raising a family and growing my business. Media appearances, especially for a show that airs on NPR, is always a good thing for business. Which is why I don't limit my interview topics to strategic networking, and I welcome opportunities to talk about being a trans dad or at-home dad or share my book launch strategies. My goal is to attract people to my work. I think it's great that some people find out about me and my work because they heard me in a podcast and the conversation wasn't even about relationship-based business strategies. I also say yes to all kinds of media opportunities because it's a great way to learn how to be a better interviewer. That was definitely the case when I was interviewed by Callie Crosley. She seamlessly asked each of three guests to share their answer and kept her listeners clued in about who was responding if one of us chimed in without her prompting us. It was so deftly done. This became even more apparent when I was interviewed by a much less experienced podcast host, and I was the only remote guest on the panel. After asking the first question, the host said, whoever wants to respond can go first. Being remote with no video, this was not a great suggestion. In contrast, Callie mentioned a guest's name somewhere in her question, so they knew it was directed at them. A few times throughout the show, she mentioned who had just spoken, for example, That was Robbie Samuels, father of two, author, and host of the Strategic Networking Podcast, On the Schmooze. It was just so great seeing a professional in action. Your challenge for this week, pay attention to how strong facilitators or professional interviewers manage a conversation. Apply the lessons learned when you're the one in charge. For instance, when you're facilitating a group discussion, be sure to direct your question to a specific person so there's no awkward pause as everyone wonders, who you're asking. Or maybe you're in a meeting and some people are joining remotely, be sure to direct some questions to them so they know when to chime in. So simple, yet such a great way to improve the dialogue. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's show. Today's guest builds the leadership capacity of small business owners. She started her career working as a consultant with large corporations such as Hewlett-Packard, Charles Schwab, and Cisco Systems. In 2009, she published Escape from Cubicle Nation, which spearheaded the movement of people leaving corporate jobs to start their own business. Building on that book's award-winning success, she published her second book, Body of Work, and founded Main Street Learning Lab, a community-based leadership development lab that supports and strengthens the work of diverse entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs of color and their allies. She's been a business coach for over 20 years, helping entrepreneurs solve core business challenges and generate stories, research, and insight. Please join me in welcoming Pamela Slim. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Pam, thank you so much for joining us from your office in Mesa, Arizona. It is really a pleasure to have you here. And as you know, this is a podcast about building strong connections and leadership is the context for that conversation. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I'm going to borrow from Lao Tzu because I actually have this quote that I have held with me ever since I was an exchange student to Switzerland in high school. And it's one of those things that I, uh, it, I grabbed onto early on and that resonates so much today. Um, and that is that the best leaders, when the work is done, the people say we have done it ourselves. So my degree was actually in community development in college. And it just has always resonated with me to be the type of leader who is really recognizing the leadership capabilities in community and doing what I can in order to support that. 
So for me, I think the probably the first significant time that I recognized my own leadership qualities was when um, I grew up in the Bay Area. And so I was working for Barclays Global Investors by day uh, as a director of training and development. And then I was the volunteer executive director of a nonprofit martial arts group in the Afro-Brazilian Capoeira. So it'd be, you know, literally like pearls and pantyhose by day take the train <laughs> into the neighborhood and right change into my cup wedding uniform. And it really was, I think, when I began to really do that work, and even though I was the volunteer executive director, um, when I began to realize that I could put programs together or write grants and get funding and, and really kind of shape the future of an organization is when I started to feel, I think, the strength that I had as a leader. And that was probably part of the early stages of me then being able to be brave enough to go out on my own. Uh, how old were you when that was happening? I was uh, in my 20s. So in my 20s, I did Capoeira from about the age of 20 until 31 for about 11 years straight. I was a maniac. You'll get to know that about me. <laughs> I tend to focus very, very deeply into what it is that I'm doing. So I trained Capoeira for a long time and, and virtually most of that time was directing that organization. And then I went out on my own when I turned 30. Well, I mean, that's when you have the energy to do things like work by day and then volunteer work by night. <laughs> it was crazy. In fact, yeah. the, what kicked me off from actually quitting my job, I ended up getting pneumonia finally. Like I was, I felt like I had boundless energy and it was such an exciting time. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But I think my body finally was like, you know, you can't really do a hundred hour weeks for another decade. <laughs> so it slowed me down. It slowed you down a little bit. And I also really appreciate this idea of um, talking about leadership in the context of people think that they're the ones who achieve the success as opposed to giving credit to the leader. Um, and, and for some reason, because probably because of the conversation uh, that I know we're going to have about the work you're doing with Main Street, I, I'm, I'm struck by a, an old memory I have. I used to work for a, a, a smart growth, sustainable development organization, and we would hold charrettes where over three days, the whole community would come together and they would design something. And the whole premise really was for them to, to say what this was like we were just the tools we were just we just had someone there to draw things like they're the ones who had the ideas and that process really did change the conversation from when is the government going to take action to okay we have a plan that we put together we're now going to hold the government accountable to fulfilling what we had designed like and that shift is so important and i and i love that um that thought process around it's almost like building it and getting out of the way. You, like, you want other people to take some ownership of it for it to be theirs. It's true because it is. It is theirs. And it, for each person, I think it's different. It, every leader is going to be drawn to different leadership opportunities. It's going to be creating leadership opportunities based probably on how they're wired and, and what they value. But I have learned now in 52 years of life and you know doing a lot of different things that at the core, I fundamentally believe that community members do have the best answers to what it is that they need to do in order to solve problems. And in, in knowing that it's not, it, it's, it's a very, it's not a hidden agenda at all, right? As a leader, it is very overtly and clearly talking about that, of recognizing that one of the things I know I can do here, where we have a physical space downtown, is to be providing physical space. But then there's also the kind of space that you can hold as a leader, where you create an environment that's very welcoming, where people feel that, you know, when they walk in the door, that it's a safe place to be, that, um, you know, whoever they are, wherever they come from, they're very welcome. They might see other people who look like them. And then from there, creating conditions in which conversations can really spark. But it's, it, it's the kind of thing, it's been so fascinating to me as an exercise in creating this space where I very specifically was using a lot of the model that I have developed around building community because that's it's the topic of the next book that I'm working on. So it's like I had the theory, I shopped it around and took it places. And then the, the fun experiment was to see, okay, like when I came here, 
downtown Mesa, nobody knew who I was. Like, you know, some people on the internet and <laughs> random places knew me from the work I had done earlier at Escape from Cubicle Nation was quite well known. But in my own hometown, downtown, nobody really knew me. And so being able to really put into practice these principles and see how they came alive was so powerful. And what I noticed is for most of my peers, so colleagues that might know the work that I did, or for some people who might walk in from um, other capacity building organizations or local government, the first question was always, so what's your program and what are you offering? And my husband and I had that very specific purpose of really saying, what we're going to do is we're going to listen first. And I would say things like, I don't know. They say, well, what is this place? And I'm like, I don't know. We're, we're finding out. <laughs> we're talking with community. We're seeing what it is that people need and want. And, and taking time to do that and not making the assumption that because I have expertise in small business, which I do, I've spent many years developing it. But when we talk about engaging folks from this community, I didn't want to make the assumption that what their problem was, was not having skills or experience. And in fact, that wasn't the problem. It was just having a place where it was very centrally located, where they could be leading um, their own workshops and, and so forth, in which we could be providing space. So it's just very fascinating, you know, on all, on all levels to learn about that through a live experiment. There's so much good in, in this that you just said. Um, for 11 years, I ran a meetup group called Socializing for Justice. And we were a cross-cultural, cross-issue, progressive community and network based on the philosophies of abundance and radical inclusion, which is a bunch of buzzwords, but if they resonate, they work. <laughs> so, yes. um, and we held events where there was no speaker, you know, and, and, you know, we, we, we did activities sometimes like, you know, uh, some sort of social gathering, it could be bowling or knitting, but we also did these like large scale, I guess, net, you know, net, open houses, networking events, whatever you'd call them. And there were people who flocked to it. And then there were all the skeptical people, especially the first year. Well, what is it? What do you do? What are people going to get? And I was like, they're going to get the ability to be in a room with people who look like themselves and meet people they otherwise would never have met. Like that is the justice. That is the work. And it's like you said, like there were people who were just like, what, what do you mean? And of course, the sharing economy didn't exist when we started. So the concept of, well, once we all know each other, we'd be able to like borrow a van and, you know, find out who needs a space for a program. And, you know, like they were like, they were like, no one does that. <laughs> we all fight over grants. We don't get in a room. And, and it was interesting to see over that decade, the sharing economy up here. <laughs> Everyone decide we don't need to own a car or whatever it is. And, you know, now you literally can rent a room for like an hour somewhere. Like that is actually a concept. See, if I were more of a business savvy, I could have been on that curve, but right. I'm more about community <laughs> than I am about You were too focused, too focused on justice, which like oh, you're speaking my language. So I totally get it. <laughs> it was so great though, but I agree. It was a social experiment of like what happens and the work that I do came out of the what happens when you get all those different kinds of people in a room mm -hmm. that are not like identified, but are value based, like mm -hmm. have, have some values in common. And so that's, I ended up writing a book called Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences, which is really the 10 years I've been speaking on the topic of Art of the Schmooze. It was all these lessons from doing this work, like what do you do? How do you engage people? And like you said, you, you, you know, when you're, when you're being agile before I knew what that word was, <laughs> you can just try things and, you know, build it, test it, tweak it, build it. <laughs> like, um, so it sounds like you created literally a container for that to happen. But here, I want to draw you way back though, Pam, I want to go back to earlier days because you were talking about this experience you had in your twenties. The mm -hmm. fact that you were willing to step up at 20 years old to take on that kind of role and responsibility. There's got to be an earlier point in your life where people saw potential in you, where you took on challenges, or, or were you the quiet kid who just blossomed suddenly at 20 years old and like, was like, oh, I'll just take that on. I was not the quiet kid. Just ask my all introvert family. So literally, I'm the only extrovert in an all introvert family. So 
God help them. They've, they're very patient. <laughs> so I was always somebody who was excited by being around people and active. To me, I really see my early stage of leadership that some was born out of necessity of, of going to work at age 12. So my mom was a single mom and she did her, you know, her best to make things happen. But for my brother, sister and I, we really wanted to help out and contribute. And, you know, for the time I was in school in the 1970s, I wanted my ditto's jeans where anybody of a certain age will know what that means. And so I started working really young um, as a dishwasher in an ice cream store. Um, and that work has always been such a joy. And I think the biggest thing for me that really um, taught me about responsibility. So some of my earliest mentors that I, I consider to be in leadership through work were the owners of the ice cream store, which I knew were like parents of my preschool friends, right? And then as I went through time and I went through school, um, a very significant, hugely significant thing for me in high school was being an exchange student. And I had kind of gone down a path of, shall we just say, making very poor choices in terms of how I was spending my time in high school. And I really had, I was telling my kids the other day, really, it was kind of a spiritual epiphany where I felt like I clearly saw that I was had two paths available. And one of them I could just sense inside that was like probably really going to lead to bad things based on uh, choices I was making. And the other was this idea of um, leaving and being an exchange student. And that just radically, radically transformed my life. It was such a profound experience. And even though I was in Europe, I was in Switzerland. Switzerland is a very international place. And it's where I met a dear friend from Ghana and from Venezuela and really began to understand the world in such a deeper way. That experience I'm so grateful for. And then from there, it just got me on the path of being much more interested in global studies. And so I went to a really small school where we had world study in Mexico my sophomore year. And then I went to Colombia to Bogota my senior year. And so those experiences being shaped by the program leaders, by the host families that I was with, by my peers and the programs, by far had a hugely significant impact for me. And I think just anybody who's had that experience of, you know, it's kind of scary when you're 16, leaving home for a year and just, you know, flying, going into a different environment where I was taking all my classes in French. I was in the French speaking part. And just knowing that I could survive that and end up thriving in that environment was something that gave me a lot of courage. Yeah. I mean, most people at any age, that would be a very daunting experience that you're going to go to that at 16. Yeah. And I, I also had to laugh that you being the only extrovert in a family of introverts. Um, that's, that's, that also means that you're, that's another form of um, diversity that you're very aware of <laughs> beyond like country of origin. <laughs> right? Well, I'll say it was help. I worked uh, with Susan Kane for a long time, for about 18 months to help her uh, create and launch The Quiet Revolution. Uh, if, for those of you familiar with her book, Quiet, which is an amazing book. And she actually describes introversion in that way. as one of the last frontiers of diversity where there is such an extrovert bias. And where I've always tried to be aware of things like that, it was really doing the work with Susan and building it and researching all the um, the ins and outs about how the extrovert bias showed, shows up, that I was tremendously humbled and actually had to go back and apologize to my family members because they, they really have been so deeply supportive. And what I have grown to understand that I hope to model as a parent is how despite coming from a very different background, they were always so encouraging of just me really flourishing as I was. And I don't remember being shushed or, right, I just can imagine my dad now, my dad just passed away, but it's like, I know he was probably sitting there exhausted and just wanting to take a nap or read a book, but he would just sit there and patiently listen to, listen to me, you know, talk for many hours. And it's just something that was such a deep revelation that you're right. I think a lot of people don't consider in that way as an element of inclusion and diversity, but it absolutely is. Yeah, I've actually written about extrovert privilege because um, I guess much to her point about bias, I feel like it doesn't take any effort for me to be out in the world. And being out in the world is as a benefit, like being, you know, people will refer you because they think of you, they think of you because they just saw you, you know, like that's a benefit and it takes very little effort. And in fact, gives me a lot back energy wise to be out in the world. And um, I know a lot of people that like 
they they got once every two weeks and like that's the that's the big push <laughs> to, and then there's the also that I, on top of the fact that I'm an extrovert on the energy scale I'm also very outgoing which you know my wife's a shy extrovert so she might go out but no one will know she's out so I think like there's there's a double benefit and I, I think it is a privilege because I don't work hard for that um, so it's really interesting to hear her talk about it in that way and for you to have the experience of learning this and then going back it's it's um it's it is very humbling and it it's made me, I think, more aware and as a better as a leader and a communicator to have that sort of understanding. And I bring it up all the time in my work because as you're building teams, people often make assumptions based on how outgoing someone is, whether they're an extrovert or not, and that may not be at all the case. And then they're building a team that that is actually one person needs the materials in advance, and everyone else is happy to you know, brainstorm for two hours. And they're like, I don't know what's going on. I don't even, my brain's not doing this. Exactly right. And it's one of those dimensions when you do start to talk about creating brave spaces, places where people really can feel like they can Mm. thrive that much like now, I think it's, 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 courtesy and respect to be asking what are somebody's preferred pronouns, right? Could also things like, what is the way that you process information, you know, and in, in doing something like planning an event to make sure that there can be plenty of time to, uh, for people to process information or not to have to put people on the spot, for example, and designing some type of strategic planning where that idea of forced extroverted brainstorming and then narrowing down where people have to make a decision is literally just grading against the massive strength often of folks who might be more introverted who can, as you said, very actively participate. You know, there's a lot of um, misunderstandings about how people show up as introverts, but you're missing the opportunity for the entire group to be stopping, to, to be thinking about making a decision and then coming back together with better information. And the same thing is true for me also in a sales situation. So when talking to potential clients, I like to really ask people, what is your preferred method for how it is that you make decisions? And as opposed to being like, okay, Robbie, I have you on the phone. I can feel you're excited. So let me just close you now. You know, It's really saying, what is the way that you make decisions? Do you like to talk with your significant other? Do you like to take a little bit of time and reflect on it? And from there, then I can figure out what's a way to follow up that feels comfortable for both of us. Boy, that is really helpful. And I think people listening just wrote that down because I get to the point where um, I often end up my, end up on calls with colleagues that then turn into sales calls um, because I, I learned and you know, ask a series of questions that helps them kind of get in touch with what they need. And then I offer a little, little bit of advice. And then there's always this moment where I'm like, do you want to talk about what it would look like to, to work together? And like, if they get permission, then we'll have that conversation. And then they get excited. And then I go, okay, but I actually don't want your answer right now. <laughs> um, I, I want, you know, I'll, three days, would that be good? Like, you know, what, how much time? But I like what you're saying, which is to really honor and have them reflect, like what would make you feel comfortable in making a big decision? Because um, if they've thought it through, then they're also more likely to take those steps, which is. That's right. And and there could be somebody who says, you know what, I'm ready. And yeah. like, take my credit card now. And, and, and it's like, if that's what they want, then I have said, yes, I learned. It was really funny. I had a client who ended up working with me, but I was, it's, it's so important for people to have sovereignty and consent and all of that. Like I really don't like to push people, but I remember saying probably through the conversation, you know, early on, a little bit earlier on when I started coaching, you know, feel free to talk to other coaches and explore other options and, you know, then get back to me. And they ended up deciding to work with me, but they said, you know, Pam, I actually didn't know if you were interested in working with me because I sort of thought you were trying to like blow me off and send me other places. So what I've learned through that is to blend where I have a conversation with somebody who is an ideal client to say, Robbie, I love the conversation. You actually are an ideal client for me. And so tell me what your process is for making a decision. Right. Do you need a couple of days? Yeah. Yeah. This reminds (laughs) me actually of fundraising. My background is in fundraising and there was this um, system that a lot of fundraisers in the 90s learned that you move people through these stages to making the ask. And it got to the point where major donors started to understand that they were part of, they were in these steps. <laughs> it was so clear. And what we learn, of course, over time, which is not going to surprise you, is that there are people that you just call them up and you're like, hey, want to renew? 5,000. Yep, great. And like, 
they don't they don't want seven steps they don't want to come to lunch they don't want to have a visit they don't they just they're just like yes thank you you know <laughs> like charge my card and that people were starting to be like oh we're on that step now okay this will be a little while like and it didn't really honor the individual approach it just moved people through the stages and i think what you're saying and same is true for sales is like it's relationships which is all based on people that's right. And we're talking in this case for a sales context, but the same exact thing can be for any kind of steps that you have in place in order to welcome people into your organization or to do a new hire orientation for your employees. You know, whenever things feel, my mom always calls it the happy training. Like if she goes to the local supermarket and she's like, oh my gosh, they've had happy training again, right? Because it's like, hello, are you having an excellent day today? You know, did you find everything you're looking for? And there's something about the quality of the the questions or the way that people are following a script that does not have the the honest connection. And I think, you know, as somebody who does nerd out sometimes on having processes and where it can be helpful to know that you're, you know, you have stages of things, you also need to make sure that you really connect with what you're doing and to to never forget the main purpose of um, things. I've been obsessing lately about um, culture code. Daniel is it Coin? I think I should know his name. I've been listening to the audiobook, but it's really talking about elements of creating um, connection. And he's saying, right, it's like safety and belonging. Those are the main things that we're always trying to create signal in multiple ways for people. And so sometimes the way to make somebody feel safe or belong is not by bringing them through a seven-step process, right? <laughs> but just by, you know, offering them a glass of water and sitting down and having a conversation. Yeah. There's a book you just made me think of, uh, Community, The Structure of Belonging by Peter Block. Are you familiar? I'm not. So this is the part that I remember. One is I was reading this by myself on a plane <laughs> and it was so resonating that I was like, hitting the person next to me. I was like, this is amazing. You know, I was like having one of those like extrovert moments where I like, I couldn't keep it in my head. But what I love about it is he talks about physical space. And what I gleaned from it is that you, when you're there to use the space, you're there for whatever you're there to convey. Like, you know, you're there to have a session to talk but you're also there to use the space and you should not just default to using the space the way the janitorial staff left it the night before. And I, that's what really resonated with me. I can't tell you how many times I went into a conference session you know, to speak and everyone knows there's only going to be 12 to 20 people and it's set up for 50, you know, in a, in, you know, classroom style. And I'm like, can we make a circle? You know, like, can we all just move the chairs and we'll put it back? And, and, People like get so much more out of it if you if you are in control of that space versus like, well, that's just how it is. Or the, the combination of that and the concept of usability versus accessibility, those two concepts really change the way I think about physical space and how community can either be created or sometimes hindered. Um, so like usability, you know, if you have a stage, there's no access unless you can walk upstairs. You can use it unless one of the speakers can't go up the stairs, in which case you have to rejigger the room so that everyone is on the same stage that is accessible and usable for that person. Um, or the oh, MIT has these big, beautiful rooms that go down, they slope down, and there's two wheelchair like spots in the back of the room. But if you're the ASL interpreter or the presenter, like you can't get to the front of the room. <laughs> like... So that room's just not usable for you in that way. And it's yet it is an accessible it is an ADA compliant room. So it's just like that kind of thing makes me think a lot. That's right. I am obsessed by that. That is a, a huge, like literal everyday preoccupation. So part of the the reason why we structure I have a main room. I know most people are just listening to audio, but I'm I'm gesticulating toward the room behind me <laughs> in my office, which is where we have flexible, easy to move furniture, because I believe so strongly and different shapes can have such radically different connotations for different audiences. Uh, my husband is Dine, he's Navajo. And so um, you think about sometimes 
certain settings, especially maybe for um, folks that come more from his generation, where when you have the total classroom setting that might have the lectern in the front, you know, it can harken back for grandparents to boarding school and, you know, sometimes really negative experiences that were had in an educational setting. And so, and, and you have almost every ceremonial conversation um, that happens in circles, which is what it is that you have for many groups. I'm like you, whenever I can create a circle, I do it <laughs> because it, it again reflects this, this true feeling and value that everybody has a place of contribution. Everybody can see each other. And, and that, that's a big part of what's important. So I think the physical environment is hugely important. And that's another thing that we've experimented with here, even in um, the colors on the walls and having lots of art. My, my favorite question that people ask, and I'm actually having signage made right now to put it right on our front doors, um, is what is this place? Like, I like it that they're confused because they're like, is it an art gallery? Like, what is this place? Because it's very vibrant. Um, and our older son is an artist. And so he's done a lot of the like murals right in the front, which are um, right on Main Street. And so it's so fun to watch. Like people are just literally drawn in by the art. And to me, that's a really important part and a signal that you might send that this is not your average taupe, boring business space. And to me, it's always the fun thing where they're like, what is this place? And I'm like, well, what do you want it to be? <laughs> you know, let's start there. <laughs> and they're like, I'm more confused than I was when I asked <laughs> this question. Like, it's really confusing. But, <laughs> but, you know, for me, my ideal folks are the folks that just light up with those kinds of conversations. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a, actually a really interesting litmus test um, to draw people in who are to be attracted in. Um and who will stay and create the vibrancy that you're looking for in a space, like who make organized chaos work because they're willing to contribute. Um, so here's, a, I want to know about the work you do, but I'm going to ask it a little differently. I want to know what you find most rewarding about the work you're doing today. What's the most rewarding? Um, and again, there's kind of two components. So there's work I do by day, um, with entrepreneurs that the rewarding thing to me with the particular kinds of people that I work with is really being able to help amplify and bring to life work that is truly changing the world. Like often people I work with like Susan Cain or others are like really building cool stuff that makes me feel so good that my skills are behind amplifying those messages. And a similar thing happens in the evening with all the community-led events that we have. But I, I do just feel tremendous joy watching what it is that happens in the organic growth where um, we call the uh, the folks here who lead programs the guardians of the key. So whenever they're community members, you know, it, just about every program we have here is led by the community for the community. And it's probably about 85% led by folks of color or otherwise underrepresented groups and the same thing for the audience. And seeing how much it's flourishing, we have a what we call the sprouting effect where somebody might come to an event, get excited by what's going on, and then they're like, hey, I want to do this. And it starts to sprout. I get so much gratification um, and a bit of, you know, um, feeling smug <laughs> when I see the result of believing a hundred percent that the leadership capability is in the community, right? It's not hypothetical. It exists. And when I look at it in comparison to any other kind of, you know, incubator type space that might have um, a focus on really trying to create more welcoming, inclusive spaces, I'm like, we're onto something here. And it's because of the leadership and it's because of this co-created environment where people feel so excited to continue to do work. And so that, that part of it, just watching the leadership growth happen, watching people move from coming and being maybe a little bit more cautious to fully participating in a program to then leading it you know, on their own is massively gratifying. What I'm also imagining is that if I were to talk to any of the people that you're working with in, let's say, 10, 15 years time, and I ask them about a moment where they realized they had leadership capabilities, they'll be telling stories about their time with you right now. Like that lasting impact is there. Well, and, you know, to me, it's, I, that's, that is what the wish is. The cool thing is, 
for a lot of the events on the evenings and the weekends, I am not even physically here. I call it, I, I we, we have that we call this space she, right? So <laughs> that's just how it is that she shows up, right? For me and my husband. And I, because this is a space that is led by and for the community, there are things that are happening here in this space that I agree with you are experiences that people are having in this environment. And yes, my husband and I have had, um, a hand in what it is that we create and how we create it. My husband is a was raised by his grandfather, who's a medicine person. So my husband does ceremony and healing, and he is he knows so much about really creating a space that really feels you know warm and healthy and welcoming. And I really feel like a lot of what the feeling is that people get here. I mean, a very common thing that people say after they say, "What is this place?" is they just say like. God, it just like feels good. Like it just sort of feels good in here. Like what's going on? And so creating that kind of environment and then knowing that other people who are here leading those programs are creating it is the kind of thing that we want. And, you know, the whole, the origin story for in, in the short version, you know, of why one of the main reasons why we created it is in 2015, I did a 23 city tour teaching community building skills for entrepreneurs. And for some reason, the very first city I asked, um, it was in Berkeley, California, uh, Mothership Hacker Moms, very Berkeley co-working space. I said, you know, how many of you have ever seen a Native American business presenter as an expert at a conference that isn't necessarily, you know, maybe doing a blessing or doing a cultural event, but is really presenting there as a business expert? And out of all 23 cities, um, you know, probably a thousand or something people, only seven had ever seen one. And four of those were in Vancouver, Canada. So that was very sobering as the parents of, you know, having Native kids and thinking of what are we seeing? Why are we not seeing that there? Um, and, and really being able to kind of deconstruct it and figure out how it is that we can create that. Because, it's, you know, to really go there within white supremacy, like one of the pillars of white supremacy is invisibility. And especially when you look historically at Native Americans and kind of specific campaigns that have been done, it really is around invisibility. And I know for me, um, now being a parent and being much more tuned in, it's amazing. Like today, reading books, listening to, you know, watching plays at school, watching um, sometimes, you know, series of things that are done, very frequently Native Americans are, are referred to as in the past tense. Oh, yes. Yes, I and have it's seen like, that. It's very chilling and very sobering, and it's by design. So mm. knowing that, to me, from the analytical perspective and for my husband, that's part of what, you know, we saw is that it's really, really important, you know, that we begin. It's not the fact that there aren't amazing experts, but there is something that is happening that we have to figure out, you know, in order mm. to create that environment. So so this actually, we, we're encircling the idea of, of the community that you're building. And, and, and like you've had this 20-year history. You've worked in the big for-profit you know, space. Um, you've had success as an author, which really created its own sort of movement. Um, Well-timed well with the economy to like have everyone get out and do their own thing. <laughs> um, I've met so many people who are celebrating their 10th anniversary in the last year, <laughs> like of being in business. That's um, right. Big deal. So how do you think about that network that you're building? And, and in particular, you know, how do you stay connected to and, and nurture and sustain connection with not your inner circle, but like that second and third layer out, the people maybe you see annually at a conference or you worked with five years ago, but you don't have any sort of reason to work with them now. Like how do you connect with those kinds of folks? Is there philosophies or habits, practices? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I do see it kind of holistically. So there's, I, I tend to think in ecosystems. So it's like based on whatever stage that um, that I'm in with what it is that I'm doing. I mean, the the core, really the core people who I am super passionate about serving for sure is entrepreneurs. And that's been the thing that's just been really a through line. Um, once I left the corporate consulting and very, you know, early on, it was kind of the use case being in corporate where people would ask me like how, how I did it, how I quit to, to kind of be on my own. So you know, initially, I know that that's something that's super important. And then as I build networks, so kind of for the first part, I really tend to look at 
based on who it is that I really want to be working with, then what is that natural ecosystem where they're already going for information, resources, support? What leaders are they following? What kind of books are they reading? What apps are they using? And for me, my job as a community builder is to be aware of great people, right, in the ecosystem, to be helping to make those connections, to be doing handoffs, and um, to be nurturing that. And that's like literally what it is that we're doing here on the ground within Mesa as we're developing the entrepreneurial ecosystem is making sure that we do know the players and that we do do a lot of that, you know, a lot of that building. Um, I, in terms of staying in contact with people, I happen to love social media. So I actually really like it for the reason that I can stay tuned in. Of course, it depends on the algorithm of the day, right? I know for sure it's hard to see everybody, but there can be, you know, strategic connection in certain kind of groups. You know, you and I first met through a Facebook group, which can be an example, right, within our ecosystem of like certain folks that might be gathered around, you know, a particular profession or a problem. Um, I like to, from the from the side of me um, connecting with my audience, I've had a newsletter, an email newsletter since 2004. So before I started my blog in 2005, my blog was Escape from Cubicle Nation. Um that was the precursor to, you know, eventually writing the book. And it's important for me to note that, right? It wasn't that I was an author and I built my community. It's that I started a blog. I began to work with people. And then from there is where, you know, the book deal came. But that's the way that I really like to be sharing with people what it is that I'm working on. And then I find, um, depending upon kind of what the wingspan is, we all know the you know, oft quoted Dunbar number of about 150 people or so that you can keep track of, maybe as being a raging extrovert community builder, we have a slightly bigger number. But um, I have learned to be okay with with people that tend to be the long-term connections. We, we have sometimes a very explicit agreement that, you know what, we may not see each other for three years, but there's not going to be any judgment about if we, you know, called each other, we don't necessarily have to post or send gifts, you know, at the holidays. It's more the understanding that we are connected. Um, there are some people where I do make sure that I am, you know, texting them to kind of check in and see how they are or, you know, doing a quick, I like doing like 15 minute Zoom calls or Skype calls, you know, to catch up with people. And then it's also um, strategic work to do sometimes at conferences. So there can be, I call them watering holes. So places in person where great amounts of people will be connecting. And that's where it's really fun to do, you know, shared dinners and visiting each other and then sharing that on social media. Wow. Okay. So, okay. We're going to unpack some of this because there's some great takeaways. One thing that you just making me think about is that you also approach this, this with the same idea that people have individualized needs around staying connected and you're not going to give them all a blanket treatment and put them all through the same filter and the same process. So if you have people in your life that you know, and these are my favorite people, the people that you just have known for decades and you catch up every few years and it's like totally fine. I actually have a call coming up this week, a Zoom call with someone that I got to know like 15 years ago and I don't, I haven't seen since I left. I mean, I, I've been living in this, this city for like 15, 16 years and I have not seen this person in that length of time. Yeah. But we have popped up on social media a little bit and now we're making an explicit plan to get on a call. So it's so exciting because it's like that's the kind of gift that you get when you're not like, oh, I didn't reach out, they didn't reach out. It's like, no, like there's still a lot of good, good there and I've been excited to see her from afar doing good things. And I, I hit reply to one of her newsletters <laughs> and I was just like, this is good stuff. Like, I am so excited for you. We should chat. And she was like, I can't believe you wrote me. Let's do that, you know? So, and I, that you also, um, you brought it around to conferences, which is, it's totally my jam is to talk about making the most out of those moments. Because I think when we go to conferences, people often say they go for networking. It's like one of the top drivers for making the decision to go, but it's rarely part of the intention setting around going um, and so they say they go for that reason but they really they don't and they don't make a plan for it but having like you said these watering hole moments if everyone else is convened there it's like easy you're like well everyone was already attracted here I'm gonna or I mean I've done this for events where I had I was there for the first time uh, it was a podcast movement a year ago I went for the first time 
And I found out that they allow you to organize informal meetups. So I organized a breakfast and drinks. <laughs> and I just declared who they were for and I put it out on social media. And before showing up, I met 20 people online who were looking forward to meeting me and <laughs> coming to my events. And I was like, I love yeah. that. It's yeah. so smart. It's like creating some, uh, like a kind of symbiotic, right? Um, meetup where you can be leveraging the fact that everybody is already there for an event. And I love that. I reminded me, I hadn't thought about this in years, but reminded me of another favorite thing, which is to think about also when you go to an event of being somebody who might connect somebody who's brand new, who maybe feels a little bit out of sorts with somebody else. I remember when I was at South by Southwest years ago, and I was in the bloggers lounge, which is a place, it's a total watering hole for a bunch of people who were, you know, into social media. And there was this young man who was a college student and he was very quiet and he was sitting next to me and I could tell he kind of had that nervous, like looking around a little bit, but feeling very awkward and like, oh my gosh, what am I doing in this room? So I started talking to him and, you know, and found out, you know, he was visiting. It was his very first time. He was kind of nervous. And so I said, okay, well, you know, what do you want to do here? And he mentioned some of the places he, the the particular um, talks he wanted to visit. And I said, so who's on your bucket list, right? Like if you could meet anybody in the world that you could possibly meet, like who would it be? And he said, I've always would love to meet Guy Kawasaki. Like I just followed his work and I love him so much. And <laughs> it just so happened, Guy Kawasaki's a good buddy of mine. He wrote the forward to my book and I was like just going to have dinner with him. And so I was like, hey, do you want to join me? Because I'm actually like going across the street, you know, to go meet Guy Kawasaki. And it was so awesome, like to just see the total like, shock and astonishment, you know, um, on his face, but it was so fun to do. Like, there's no way you can get cynical or you can be like, you know, looking around the room and you're like, okay, who's important here and who can I talk to, to get what I need? Like just to go with that intention of wandering down the hallway and figuring out if there is somebody. And for me, it's especially noticing not somebody who is consciously, um, you know, wanting a private moment and, you know, has their headphones and it doesn't want to be disturbed, but maybe somebody that you can kind of tell is wanting to maybe be a little bit more integrated, but feels a little bit left out. And just to find out, you know, and that, I, that just happened to be sort of rando, right? That like, <laughs> I knew Guy really well and I was just about to go meet with him, but it was so fun. And that, oh, those, yeah. those things to me are just like, ah, it's the joy. And it re-energizes you and, and it makes you aware again of like, what's possible, right? Because, you know, you're just like going through the motions, you know people, you've made your plans, but it's like seeing the world through his eyes, it's like seeing the world through the eyes of a child, like they're so excited, that kind of thing. So my book title, Croissants versus Bagels, I hadn't actually told you what that was. And you were like, you were like, I'm gonna let that go, but I'm gonna go back to it. Bagels <laughs> are those tight networking circles that are impossible to break into. And the croissants are what you see when one person opens up their body language and makes space for others to join. That's the question. Look at that. See? And they're also like buttery and delicious. Yes. And all the other good things. I do like bagels though. I do bagels like bagels. Bagels are great. I'm a New Yorker at heart. So but <laughs> but it's this um and, and I train longtime members, longtime participants, regulars, I would call them, to be hosts, to have a host mentality, much like what you're saying, and to look for both physical outliers like the the wallflower. Um, but also demographic outliers. Like I am so drawn. It's not even conscious anymore. If I'm, if I walk into a space, I was actually just recently at a really great event, you know, super fun people. And I looked around the room and there was two black people talking together and there, there was no other black people or really people of color at all in the room. And I walked over and they actually worked at that space, <laughs> so, which also tells you something about the event. Um, yeah. But they also were cool people um, who worked at a really cool venue that we had used. You know, it's like one of these co-working spaces. And it was just like, is anyone else here going to make this effort? Like, what a loss that you're not seeing this. And also, why were, like, why is there 100 people gathered and, like, no people of color? So, Boston, that's the answer. <laughs> the yeah. intentionality is required. Um, but I think what you're saying is true. Like, if you reach out and you ask people, like, one of my favorite exit strategies, actually, if I don't know a lot of people is, hey, I don't know that many people. Who do you think I should meet? Like, is there anyone you think I should meet? And then asking to be introduced. But if I've been going for a while, I'll do the exact opposite, which is what you did, 
who are you looking to connect with? And now I can't always say I'm about to have dinner with Guy because that's pretty cool. But what a dream, you know, that you give to somebody when you ask. So this has been a fantastic conversation. One of my favorite questions I'm going to ask, which is our closing question, if we're connecting a year from now, and I'm thrilled that we're going to stay connected on social media, um, but if we're talking about all of the amazing accomplishments that you've had in the previous year, what are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? I will uh, have turned in my manuscript for my book, so I will be celebrating from the rooftops and we'll be happy to send you a copy. Um, and we will have closed on a couple of grants here for the space in order to allow us to really be developing like the next level of um a programming for our leaders here, but also we will have piloted the first generated by and for um, program that we're that we would have done a pilot for. That then we're going to be licensing to other startup co-working other environments that really want to create inclusive spaces because part of what I find is funny sometimes, right, is you get a bunch of white folks in the room, create stuff, and then they're like, hey, you know, diverse brown people or whatever, could you just sprinkle some diversity on top, right? And it doesn't work that way. Like by design, if you want to be more inclusive, that has to be driven by a community that has a whole variety of different perspectives. So that's the long-term play of what we're looking to do here is really to be the generator of um, systems and processes and licensed programs that can help other communities uh, do it right. It's so exciting. I'm I'm like on the edge of my seat to hear all this and to see it come to, to fruition. So uh, Pam, how can people find you and follow your work? Uh, you can find me at PamelaSlim.com. Fantastic. We will put the link there in the show notes. We also have a link to your Twitter and your LinkedIn. So if people want to check out and connect with you there as well. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Pamela. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes and on the schmooze.com. Look for episode 151. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all 150 archived episodes on a very Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorites. Have you been thinking about working with me? Not ready to commit to a six-month program? Send me an email to ask me about the More Fundamentals, a three-month program that gets you the information you need to take your business to the next level through relationship-based business strategies and gives you access to the community that will support you. My email is Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. This is a precursor to the MORE program for entrepreneurial women, which I'll be running again next year from February to November. So if you want more information about that program, which is a a mastermind-focused program, um, also send me an email. If you enjoyed this episode with Pamela, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.